I know how unusual it is if you're here this morning and you're not a believer or you just maybe are a believer but have never learned about worship and you see these people lifting their hands, closing their eyes, maybe kneeling on the ground, maybe dancing, and, and you wonder what it's towards. And, and it, it's very confusing because you, you look around, like, what, are they, what are they getting all excited about? What are they worshiping towards? It's very hard to understand. But a hard for you this morning is, is, is that you'd open up your heart to the one that we know to be the Lord, and you will understand. And time will understand. But his presence is here this morning. He's doing a work. And there is nothing but nothing in this world that is more beautiful than the presence of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm really glad to be back. I've, for those of you who are visiting here, I, my name is Greg Boyd. I'm the speaking pastor here. I've been gone for a couple of weeks. And I want to publicly thank Ed Rothman and Al Holt for coming in and, and doing such an excellent job on bringing forth the word and preaching. It's so good and it's healthy for a church to see the, the word proclaimed from different perspectives, from different angles, with different personalities. That's, that's just very healthy, and we always want to be doing that. And I just am thankful for the body of Christ at large that has gifted uh, expositors and teachers and preachers and evangelists. But it is very good to, to be back here. I just uh, appreciate this place. Appreciate what God is doing. Uh, God is doing some very cool things we can't get into right now, but the two things in, my, in life that give me the most joy is seeing new believers come to the Lord and then seeing old believers get on fire for God when previously they, they hadn't been. And we're just seeing that. Last week, I don't know how many people came forward in the first and the second service to either give their heart to the Lord for the first time or maybe to rededicate their life to the Lord, but it was a lot. And, I, and that just turns me on. I know in the last two weeks, five different people who have uh, decided to get baptized, who got baptized. They just, all of a sudden, they saw this. They, 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 in studying the Bible, came to the conclusion that they are to be baptized. And in studying the Bible, they came to the conclusion that they are to be baptized now. And in studying the Bible, they came to the conclusion that you don't need somebody with an REV in front of their name to do it. So they just went to other believers and said, would you baptize me? And uh, they were baptized. And that is so cool. I love stuff like that. Amen. Praise God. Maybe you're wondering how far are we going to go with this thing? How, how, how crazy are you going to get? How radical are you going to get? You know, you got, now you've got people being baptized without the official sanctioning of the pastors. Well, we're going to go as far as it says to go. Amen. Amen. Not one inch further. But also, and this is the radical thing, not at one inch less. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Hebrews, where we have been hovering for quite some time. And as far as I'm concerned, we can hover here till the rapture. I've just been overwhelmed this week, and I'm just overwhelmed this morning, but I... Just in, in, in praying and preparing for the message here this morning... I tell you, this, this revelation from God has got such treasures in it. There is such depth. These passages here, we, we, we have been now eight weeks on the first nine verses of chapter two. And you know what? I still feel like we've sped through it too fast. <laughs> too fast. There's, 
If you take time to chew on the word and just hover here and let it digest, just let it savor in your mouth and apply it to your mind verse by verse, there are treasures of wisdom here. A profoundness that you'll never get from me. Believe it. Believe me. This isn't going to come from the pulpit. The Lord can speak to you through his word. If you take time to just read a verse and let it savor in your mind, let it become part of your being. And I've just been so impressed as I read this chapter again and again and again and again. It just hits me in different ways each time. This morning, what I want to do is just to give a little, 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 it's like holding up a diamond and, and, and saying, let's just look at one little reflection of this diamond. But I encourage you to, on your own, get into the Word. You are ministers. You are kingdom people. Let God use whatever gift I have to that end. Great. Praise God for that. But take up the Word on your own and, and, and read it slowly and carefully and prayerfully and let it just digest in, in your inner being. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Just let this, the proclamation that is here resonate in your brain and it will build faith. And it'll make you, it'll be, begin to bear kingdom fruit in your life. That's not the sermon I want to preach this morning, so I've got to move on, but just know that. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2, I want to read verse 9 and following once again. But we see Jesus. We don't see, as we've seen in the past here, we don't see ourselves in the position that we're supposed to be in. But we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for a little while anyways, and he's now crowned with glory and honor. The glory and the honor that was given to humanity, he now has, and we shall have it because of what he did. But we see Jesus now crowned with glory and honor. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He died for us. And bringing many sons to glory... And if you don't know this little parenthetical thing here, when the Bible talks about sons and brothers, you can understand that sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. But in this culture, as in most cultures, at least ancient cultures, uh, women weren't mentioned. Even to this day in the Hebrew culture, uh, they have masculine and feminine versions of different nouns, like the noun for group. But if there's one male in a group of a thousand females, you refer to it as a male group. That's just the mindset. Uh, and the Bible speaks that ancient language. So just know that this is not just a son thing. This is, this is why I don't hesitate at all to say sons and daughters or just children. But in bringing many children to glory, it was fitting. It was proper. It was appropriate that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect or complete through suffering. Now, verse 11 is the one I want to focus on here this morning. Both the one who makes men holy... The one who makes men, people, believers, holy. And those who are made holy by this one are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. And now, now, now the author is going to prove it in a couple of verses. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. I will sing your praises, quoting the Psalms. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children, the family that God has given to me. And now the author is going to bring it all home. The question he's asking here is this. How can Jesus be God above the angels if in fact he was a human being and if in fact he died? 
And he's arguing to, he's, he's making this point to Jewish believers who are thinking about going back to their old Judaism, their old view of God, their old picture of God, and therefore their old view of themselves. And he's really saying, why would you ever do that? Here's why God became a man. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Why was he made a human being? Why did he take on flesh and blood? Why did he, as he says in the next verse, uh, become in every respect made like we are? Why? Because he wants to make us his children. He wants to make us brothers and sisters. Let's just pray. Father, let your word come alive here, Lord. Overwhelmed by your presence, Lord. Overwhelmed by your love. Overwhelmed by your goodness, Lord. It's hard to even talk. But Lord, you have said that through stammering lips you speak to your people, and maybe this is one application of that verse, Lord. I pray, God, that, that whatever comes out here, Lord, would, would just be anointed, it would have your spirit, it would have your energy, it would have your power to do the healing work, Lord, that you want to have done here, to do the forgiving work that needs to be done here, Lord to do the rebuilding of our identity, Lord, that work that needs to be done here. But you've got to do that by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. There's two things I want to talk about here this morning, and they really are the, uh, the background of this entire text, the, the central point of this entire text. The two points are this. The two questions I really want to ask is this. What is your view of God, and what is your view of yourself, given what your view of God is? It's really what the text is, is, is getting at here. He's talking to Jewish believers who are Christians, but they're discouraged, and they're thinking about going back to their, 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 their Judaism. And one of the main issues that they have, because in the Jewish faith, this was always a stumbling block. Paul tells us this. They could not understand how God, why God, would become a human being. God, who is creator, all-powerful, all-glorious, all-splendid, how could such a supreme being, such a deity, magnificent, holy, maybe even terrifying, how could he, why would he, lower himself to become a human being, and most offensively, why would he ever die on a cross, an ignoble death? And the author here is saying basically this, if you think that becoming a human being and dying a God-forsaken death is incompatible with who God is, You've got a wrong picture of God. What you think about God, the picture you have of God is so crucial. I really believe that everything else about us, what we think about ourselves, what we think about our world, what we think about other people is influenced by, and it even goes so far as to say determined by, what you think about God. Now when I say, what do you think about God, I'm not saying, what, what have you been taught to say about God? What do you recite uh, on the basis of what you got in Sunday school, God's this, that, and the other thing. Not, I'm not asking what is the theologically correct answer to give about who, who is God. I'm asking this question, what is at the core of your, your belief system, the core of your mind, the core of your being in terms of how do you genuinely picture God? I think I've shared this before, but I want to share it again. spoke with a, a young lady at Bethel College several years ago. This is just one of a number of instances that I've had like this, but this one is, is I think, the most explicit, so I use it. But she came to me because she was distraught and disturbed because she didn't feel like she was on fire for God. She came to me because she thought I had something that she didn't have. 
She saw a life there or an energy there and enthusiasm there that was lacking in her life. And she just felt tired. She was one of these tired Christians. And she wondered why. Why is it that I, I find Christianity, I find doing good works, I find going to church and all of that to be a bunch of drudgery. It, it fatigues me. It discourages me. I don't even like it. She had gone to her pastor and, and some friends with that question, and they had given her answers something like this, and this is all too common, but her pastor, for example, asked her, have you been praying enough? Have you been tithing? Sometimes we lose, our, you know, the Holy Spirit's not active in our life. We're not stirring it up because we're not obeying God enough, and there's a truth to that. But are you tithing enough? Are you, uh, are you going to church enough? Are you witnessing? Uh, you know, have you fasted lately? And she tried to do all those things. Come unto me, all ye that are labor, that labor and are heavy laden. And I'll give you a couple more things to do. And that's what she was feeling. See, if I was on fire for God, I'd do all those things, but the problem is I'm not on fire for God. So you're telling me to, it's, the, it's the old cart before the horse thing. And so she was just wondering, how is it that I can become passionate about God? So I asked her this question, what is your picture of God? What, what, tell me what you think about God. Just like if a husband comes and and, and says, you know what, I just don't love my wife. I don't have any zeal for my life. I find my, my, my marriage to be a drudgery. I would ask, what do you think about your wife? I mean, to give me a picture of your wife here. What's going on here? So also, if a Christian comes and, and, and tells me they don't have any zeal, they don't know what the big hoopah is about, I want to know, what is your picture of God? Now, she gave me, as most believers would give me, the standard theologically correct answer. Well, of course, God is omnipotent. God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. God is omnibenevolent. God is omnipresent. Omni, omni, omni. God is good, God is gracious, God is loving, God is kind. Yes, 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 yes. But what really do you think about God? And it took a while to get to this point because she kept on saying, I'm not sure what you mean. Well, what really? Let's pretend like God didn't exist. What would you say about God? Because he knows what you think anyway, so you might as well come out and say it. What is really going on in your, towards your picture of God? How do you picture God? What really was going on was this, and it took a while to get here, but it finally came out, is that her real picture of God, beneath all of the veneer of correct theological answers, her real picture of God was that God was a lot like her dad and a lot like her pastor and a lot like the, a lot of the people in her church, came from a real kind of hyper-legalistic background. God was this moralistic accountant sort of a being who was keeping the debits and the credits on a, on a, on a record of things. God was always a little bit angry, a little bit disappointed, in fact, she said that God had his hand cocked back like this, always ready to slap her because he was just waiting for her to screw up. And I asked her, if this God was incarnated, became a, became a human being, what would he look like? And that's exactly what he would look like. And then I asked her this question, who, would you want to hang around with a person like that? Would you, would you really be in love with a person like that? Would you want to do service? Would you like to be employed by a person like that? And the answer, of course, is no. No one could be in love with a person like that or being like that. To be enthusiastic about it, working for a person like that, oh, screw up when we're talking. Oh, there you go again. And you see, if that's what's really going on in terms of your picture of God, if that's what you really believe in the core of your being about God, then it's going to have radical implications in your life. There's no way you can get on fire, get passionate about a God like that. If your view of God is that he's always a little bit disappointed, your Christian life is going to be just full of shame. Now, you may have all sorts of theologically correct answers, but there's going to be shame in your life. And if your view of God is that he's always angry at you, you're going to be doing your Christian life in a, in a fear mode. But of course, you're trained not to say that. You're trained to say that God loves me, and you'll say all of that. But what's really going on is that you're scared to death. Yeah, there's the good news, but there's also the fine print. And the fine print's what you read. 
If, if your view of God is that he's really apathetic towards you, you're going to be apathetic. If your view of God is that he talks double talk, a lot of believers have this view of God, he talks double talk, then you're going to have a whole lot of trouble trusting God. I love everybody, but I predestined the majority to go to hell. Yeah, what, what? I love you with an everlasting love. I love you unconditionally. Grace is for free. Now start paying it back. What, what? I have my arms around you, but you screw up one more time. You're my child. Screw up one time and you're out of here. Double talk. How can you trust a guy? It's like, where am I? It's like growing up in a home with a dysfunctional alcoholic father who says, I love you, as he's slapping you across the face. What do words mean anymore? You even get this sometimes in, in academic circles. I've just been reading a couple of books this week for this uh, project I'm working on, and I'm telling you, it's been driving me crazy because there's this double talk all over the place. And I just want to be honest with you. I don't know where your theology is at, and, and I don't want to be... But I just got to be honest with where I'm at. And I read these books, and it drives me crazy because I read things like this, that God is so great, God is so exalted, God is so mighty, that everything but everything, every molecule that moves, is controlled by him. He controls everything. Even evil, he controls. Even sin, he controls everything. God is so great that, that he can even predestine the majority of people to go to hell. And he has the right to do that. And that's supposed to be great, and that's supposed to be wonderful. And I'm reading these things, and I'm asking myself the question, number one, is that biblical? I cannot see that it is. But number two, how can you call that great? How can you call that beautiful? How can you even call that good? What Hitler did was somehow... God doing it. It strikes me as double talk. God loves everybody, because the Bible says God's not willing that any should perish. But he predestines the majority to go to hell. Well, then what do you mean when you say he loves everybody? The word loses meaning. Double talk. And if that's what you really believe, then in the core of your being there's going to be a, a profound sort of mistrust. This is why it is so crucial, I believe. And this is why this passage is so profound, I believe. This is what the author is getting at with these Jewish believers. It is this. When it comes to thinking about God... The last thing we should do is to try to take from our experience and project onto the screen of heaven what seems natural to us. The cue for thinking about God, the clue, the key, the center for all of our thinking about God has got to be, and this is what the author is driving at here in Hebrews 2, the person of Jesus Christ. He says, if you see me, you see the Father, John 14, 9 and 10. The Bible calls him the image of God. The Bible calls him the word of God. The Bible calls him in Hebrews 1, the expression of God. The Bible says that no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, he has declared him. He has made him manifest. That's why Jesus can say, don't look to the right or the left of me. If you see me, you see the Father. But what we see in the person of Jesus Christ is this. Now, if you're wondering when I'm going to preach a Christmas sermon, this is it right here. That God's greatness... Is, is, is manifested, is declared precisely when God makes himself what looks like not great. God is so exalted. He doesn't have to control everything. He doesn't have to protect his exaltation. He is so exalted. He is so sovereign that he can pour himself out into, a, a, into humanity, become a human being. He is so powerful, he can make himself vulnerable. He's so secure in himself. He doesn't need to compulsively control everything. He's so secure in himself, he can give away freedom, so much freedom that we can even abuse him on the cross of Calvary. We can even break his heart. This God is so secure, so great, so powerful, he doesn't need to preserve it and protect it by manipulating and controlling everything. This God, his greatness, his beauty, his sovereignty, his transcendence is manifested in the person of Jesus Christ when he goes to the cross and he says, I want to make of this sinful rebel race children 
brothers and sisters. That is God's greatness. That is God's transcendence. And everything hangs, everything hangs upon our resolving in our mind to have that picture of God and nothing but that picture of God. Let God define who God is. Not your dad, not your mom, not your peers. Let God define who he is. It's just so... See, if a human being was the most powerful human being on earth, that's maybe what they would do. they try to control everything. But God is not like that. His greatness is revealed in the fact that he becomes a little baby in the manger. And if you see that, the author of Hebrews is basically saying this, why would you ever want to go back to your former view of God when this is the view of God that's revealed in the person of Jesus Christ? And if you think that it's weak to become a man, if you think that's a sign of weakness to die on the cross, if you think it's a sign of weakness to love to the point of letting creatures who are infinitely lower than you break your heart, if, that's your, if that seems weak to you, then you've simply got a wrong definition of power because that is the most powerful thing imaginable. Here's a way of knowing whether or not your view of God is true. Does it look like Jesus Christ? Amen? If you can think of a being that is more beautiful than the view of God you're imagining, you're not imagining God because God's supremacy is manifested in his beauty, in his love, in his grace. When you get that, it changes your view of yourself. And that, this brings me to the second point I want to make this morning. It says in verse 11, In bringing many children to glory, it was fitting, it was proper, for God, for whom and through whom everything exists, that he should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both, verse 11, the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. I want to make two points about this. Number one, the text says that God makes us holy. Amen? Because of what Jesus did, because of who God is and what Jesus did on our behalf, he makes us holy. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that that means that we do not, on our own, by our own effort, make ourselves holy. If you've got the good news picture of God, you get the good news picture of, of who you are. He makes people holy. Let me read what Paul says here in Romans chapter 4. This is, this is just the core of the good news, folks. We can't hear it too much. Verse 4. Now when a man works... When a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. Okay, if you work for an employer and he gives you a paycheck, you don't say, oh, thank you so much, what a nice gift. No, you earned it, and so he pays it to you. But what Paul is saying is this, God is not an employer. All right, God's not a little Santa Claus up in heaven who gives you little toys when you're good. God is under obligation to nobody. However, to the person who does not work, but simply trust in God. Verse 5, Romans chapter 4. Woo! Trust in God who justifies the wicked. The word justifies there in Greek is dikaiosune. It means to declare righteous. The one who does not work, doesn't try to like earn it, like get a big paycheck from God, get a nice toy from Santa Claus. The one who gives up on that, who despairs of that. And simply trust God who dikaiosune, who declares righteous, who? The, the good people? No, the wicked. What kind of a God are we talking about here? His faith is credited as righteousness. 
David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Totally different track. When he says, verse 7, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Blessed is that man. What we've got to get out of that is this. What the author of Hebrews is saying, what Paul is saying in, in, in Romans chapter 4 is this. Because of who God is, Let's get the right picture of God. This has got to revolutionize the way you think about yourself. And the central way that it revolutionizes how you think about yourself is this. You no longer try to take your, your key, your clues about who you are on the basis of what you do or what you own or how you look. The center of your being, the center of your self-identity has got to be the place where God not only defines who he is, but he defines who you are. And what you see in the person of Jesus Christ is this. He makes you holy. It is not, the author is saying to the, the people at Hebrews, it is not the fact that you listen to the Torah, that you read the Torah so much. Great, do that, but that's not what makes you holy. It's not the 616 laws of the Old Testament that you keep so meticulously that makes you holy. You want to do that, do that, but that's not what makes you holy. It is not the fact, he would say to us today, that you go to church on a regular basis. Do that. That's a good thing to do. But that's not what makes you holy. Don't lean upon that. Don't assess yourself. On, on, on the basis of that, it's not the fact that you give so much money to the church or that you help people across the street or visit hospitals or speak in tongues or give prophecies or, or heal the sick or raise the dead. Those are not little badges that you've got, little checks that you get that up your estimation before God. The only thing that can make you holy, if in fact you are holy before God, is putting your love, putting your trust, putting your confidence in what God has done for you in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. God makes you holy. This is not a pretend kind of holiness, like God's going to pretend like you're holy. No, he really makes us holy. People who think that, well, but since God thinks I'm holy, I'm going to go out and sin all the time because he can't see it. They just are, that, that's insulting to God because when God says, I make you holy, he didn't say, I pretend that you're holy. He makes you holy. It changes your inner being. But he's the one who does it. One of the things that most impresses me, uh, that it just hits me with this, is when I think about this, is, is, it gets clearer to me in, in this way. The Bible says six times that God forgets our sin. In fact, in, in Hebrews 8, verse 12, it says, that I will remember your sin no more. Now, I, I can get in on that because I'm good at not remembering things. I know what that's like. Uh, I, I, am, I have an incredible, and I mean an incredible capacity to forget things. My wife will say, well, you know, we've got to do this tonight. And I'll go, what? Uh, we, you know, we're supposed to go to so-and-so's house. What? I scheduled something else. And she goes bonkers because she goes, we talked about that yesterday. We talked about it Saturday. And I knew you wouldn't remember it. And I wanted to just prove it, so I wrote it down. <laughs> and I honestly, I searched my brain. It's like, uh, when did we talk about I don't remember that. Where did I put those stupid, stupid keys? <laughs> this last week, I went around looking for my keys. I found a watch that I had lost a couple weeks before. <laughs> I'm serious. It's in the Bethel weight room. And I got a really good picture of what God is like when Satan brings the accusations against us. Here's what it means for him to make us holy. God goes... I just don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have a clue. 
I don't know how literal to take that, but you know what? It's like God saying, I can just picture him. Where did I put those sins? Uh, yeah, saying, yeah, you got a point there. There's something, I, I can't remember it. I guess we got to let them go free. Praise God. <laughs> Praise God. Here's another attribute of God. I want to be a radical theologian and give God a new attribute. It's called selective Alzheimer's. How's that? Praise God. <laughs> he knows when to forget. All right. Maybe, maybe that was in bad taste, but you got the point. How holy does he make us? This is the second point I want to make about how it changes our view of ourselves. See, it's one thing to be accepted. God accepts us. But, you know, accepting someone is sort of the minimal thing you can do to them. The alternative to that is not accepting them, and that's pretty bad. So accepting is nice. But there's a lot of Christians who believe that they're accepted by God, but they're, they're accepted on the periphery. Or another way of saying it is this. A lot of Christians who believe that they're forgiven, and yet they carry a lot of the shame with them. Yeah, forgiven. Yeah, I'm accepted. I got in by the skin of my teeth. The Lord doesn't just accept us. When he makes us holy, he makes us family. The Bible says that he is not ashamed. The one who makes people holy and the ones who are made holy are of the same family. Siblings. So that he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. This just blows me away. I, the Lord gave me this picture to, to just, in a nutshell, drive this home. And this is one of the shameful things that I just have to confess. You know, it's, when I was in 11th grade, I was on a cross-country team, and we were running around uh, this course by our high school, and different people were running in different pockets, and what, two, 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 of the, two of our runners discovered some kids in the hockey rink who were in a, in a corner, or I guess it was like the warming house. There's two young men who were having a homosexual relationship. And quickly they hollered out to the rest of us, Hey, you guys, come over here! We ran over there, and there were these two guys, and they had taken some of their clothes to catch them red-handed with their pants down lower. One guy was this uh, very obese, very obese, very uh, pimply-faced uh, guy in high school that is kind of kid you, you notice, but no one knows his name. Another guy was this little, tiny, effeminate, scrawny guy that I'd actually known in 5th, 6th, and 7th grade. We hung around together for a little bit. We were almost the same height back then, but he just didn't grow, and I did. And, and it, somehow we, our paths had crossed, I, or our paths had, had parted. But I recognized him. And we gathered there, and then somebody called out to the football team that was practicing on the football players. Now, us cross-country types, we weren't ever violent, but these, cross, these football guys were a little of the more jock type, you know, the rowdy type. And they came over there, and before you know it, we had a ring in this hockey rink around these two boys. And people began to make comments and make sneers and make remarks, and somebody spit on one of them. And one of the football players came over and kind of pushed one of them. And these two kids had nowhere to go. And the guy that I knew, I'll call him, I'll call him Johnny. It wasn't his real name, but he looked over to me and said something, and I'm not sure what he said, but he, it, it was like he scanned this, this audience here. And he looked at me and, and, as if to say, Greg, will you do something here? Don't we have... You know, we haven't known each other for a couple of years here, but we, had, we were friends. Will you please do something here? Like the only guy in the crowd that he recognized. But I was ashamed to call him a friend. I didn't even want anyone to know that I ever knew this guy. And we were all hollering faggot or whatever, and I just joined in the holler. And he kind of looked at me like this. 
And I can't even begin to enter into the sense of humiliation that these two kids must have experienced. I have no idea of understanding what kind of pain they were in. I mean, these are two kids that could not get a date if their life depended on it. And for all I know, they were driven to each other out of sheer despair, having no one else to turn to. And that's not to condone what they were doing, but it is to try to understand what they were doing. And all I did was join in the crowd as, as though the crowd were mocking Jesus, and I just mocked them and just howled out the epithets as well. Because I didn't want to even have anyone know I was ashamed ever having known this guy. Would not step forward. I had heard, both of them dropped out of school very quickly, and I heard a couple months later that the guy that I knew, Johnny, had tried to hang himself in his basement. It didn't work, and at last I heard he was in some kind of a group home, a psych ward kind of a thing. The Lord just brought this back to my memory. That's something that I've had to be forgiven of. And it just doesn't cut it to say, well, I I wasn't a Christian then. Yeah, I wasn't, you know what, but that's sin. But the Lord showed me this. As a way of, there's something, whenever I say, whenever I think to myself, he's not ashamed of me, there's something that just gets me. And the Lord just, instead of, instead of Johnny and this other guy in the middle of the circle with these mocking people, their pants down, just being humiliated, the Lord put me in the middle of that hockey rink. Because I, too, have done shameful things. Maybe it wasn't that particular sin, but it was other sins, and so have you. And there is no real difference when it comes to defining righteousness and relationship to God between those two young men and any one of us in this congregation. And we all have our circle of shame, shaming voices that are there, hollering accusations about who we are on the basis of what we've done. And what the Lord showed me this week is what he would have done to Johnny and what he did to me. It comes kind of out of the woman caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 8, where Jesus comes into the ring in the midst of all this spitting and these accusations, and in his authority, he silences the crowd. Maybe he says, let the first one, let the one who is innocent cast the first stone or spit the first luger, and silences the whole crowd. And I could just see him grabbing me in this circle as he would have grabbed Johnny had he been there, and I think in his heart, this is what he wanted to do if Johnny would receive it, and I do receive it, come in there and says, I'm not ashamed to call him friend, in fact, this is my little brother. And I want all you guys to shut up and go away because this is my brother. And yeah, he's got a problem. And we're going to take care of that. And the way we're going to take care of that is I'm going to love him. Right here, right now, in the midst of all this, I'm going to love him. I'm not ashamed to call him brother. I'm not ashamed to call him sister. Call her sister. And this morning, what you've got to know is this. I don't know what your past is. You don't know what my past is. But I know we've got a past. I know that before the righteousness of God, we are all homosexual kids in the middle of a hockey rink with demonic voices spitting at us. And it's one thing to accept the forgiveness of God on a theoretical level, but can you get free from the shame? There is no shame in Christ Jesus. If God's not ashamed of you, if God is for you, I can see Jesus saying to the crowd out there, if I'm for him, who are you going to dare? Which of you is going to dare be against him? And the crowds go away. If God be for us, who can be against us? The Lord would free us from the pain of the shame. What is your circle of voices? What is your circle of voices? Maybe it's a circle of dads. Maybe it's a circle of moms. Maybe it's a circle of a lot of different people. Maybe it's just some, some demonic voices that just say, we know about your abortion. We know about your adultery. We know about your affair. We know about your pedophilia. 
We know about your thievery. We know about your lying. We know about your thought life. We know about your marriage. We know what a hypocrite you are. We know what you've done in the past. We know about your incest. We know about that. And we accuse you of it. We condemn you of it. We spit on you because of it. And this morning, I just want you to let the Lord get into the middle of that ring. In fact, right now, close your eyes. And I wonder if you can see this. Just let the, ask the Holy Spirit here to momentarily create that circle that would condemn you. And you know that you've been forgiven, but maybe it's not an experienced reality just yet. And now, and they're accusing you of whatever. Do you carry some shame in your life, a secret that no one's supposed to know about? And can you see Jesus right now come into that ring, come into that circle, that circle of shame, and he takes the spit, he takes the accusations for you. And you see him silence the crowd. And then right now, see him put his arms around you. And he says to you these words, I'm not ashamed to call you brother. I'm not ashamed. I'm proud. I'm not ashamed to call you my sister. We're in the same family. Let the Lord minister to you. And let's just close by ministering to him. Let the Lord minister to you right where you are. In fact, let's just stay seated, or you can stand if you want. If you want to come forward as we sing this song, come forward. You don't have to. But just let the Lord minister to you as we now minister to him. He is worthy of our praise, not because he's so big and strong. He is that. But because of his love for us and what he's done.